This morning's scripture reading is from Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 21. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another, love yourselves, above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Thank you, Nick, for reading scripture for us this morning. So I want to tell the story this morning of the first sermon that I ever preached. Uh, And I'll say here from the top that it was not a very good one. (laughs) Uh, I remember it well. Uh, It was at Twin Pines Camp. I was helping out there with uh, a retreat, and my friends and I were asked to plan this retreat for uh, junior high or senior high campers, and we decided uh, that we would split the the weekend, and each of us would have a talk that that we would give. So it wasn't quite a sermon, maybe more of a talk, but looking back on it now, you know, it was kind of a sermon. Um, And so I don't really remember what the sermon ended up being on. I I probably have it somewhere. Um, All I know is that I had no idea how to preach or write a sermon. I had no idea. See, I had grown up going to church, and so I had listened to many sermons. So I kind of had that idea, but I had never done it for myself. Uh, And because I had no idea what I was doing, I then waited until the last minute (laughs) to to start writing it. And so I I was a junior at Penn State at the time, and I didn't have a car, and the retreat was in the Poconos, and so I ended up taking a megabus from Penn State to the Harrisburg Mall, uh, where my friend Jason, who was going to Messiah at the time, came and picked me up from the Harrisburg Mall, and then from there we went to camp. Now, what's interesting about this story uh, is that the only bus that I could take landed me at the mall a couple of hours early. So I had a layover in the Harrisburg Mall. uh, And so I wrote the entire sermon on pieces of notebook paper in the Harrisburg Mall food court. Uh, (laughs) um, That's a a humble beginning, I guess, right? And so I, I remember it going okay when I had given it. I quoted a bunch of scripture passages, you know, and uh, these little ripped up pieces of paper that I have in my Bible are actually uh, little notes that I had made to myself to let me flip through them. So I keep them as as a reminder of that first sermon. 
And I remember talking about, you know, good and evil. I think that was the topic of the sermon, and I referenced some pop culture things. Probably only talked for about 10 minutes, uh, kept it pretty short. Uh, but that was my first sermon. Uh, today, and here's where this ties in with today's sermon, uh, we're going to be looking at the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, that's where we'll be beginning today. Uh, likely Jesus' first recorded sermon, at least in the book of Matthew. And what many point to as his most fundamental teaching. And this sermon from Jesus is much better than my first sermon. So let me pray for us this morning, uh, and then we'll take a look at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Let's pray. Father, we thank you um, for the way that you work in our lives. We thank you, God, for your word, for how it speaks to us. And this morning, God, may we hear from, from your word. May we hear from your son, Jesus. May your word speak through me, we pray. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. So turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Matthew chapter 5. That's where we'll be spending our time together this morning. Uh, and we'll be looking at all of chapter 5 today, which is... A little ambitious. <laughs> As I was preparing this week, uh, I realized this was a lot of material, uh, but also Matthew is a long book. And so as we're going to move through this sermon series over the next couple of weeks, uh, we're going to be pulling out some large pieces of scripture. So we'll look at the whole chapter today. Uh, and so as much as I would love to dive really deep into some of these things individually, uh, if we want to cover the whole chapter, we'll need to look at kind of the big picture and maybe the overall message of Jesus' teachings here. You could preach an entire sermon series on just a couple of verses uh, in this chapter. The Sermon on the Mount runs from here in Matthew chapter 5 all the way into Matthew chapter 7. Uh, and so this is what the king or what the sermon is about. It's about the kingdom of of heaven. Right? A couple of weeks ago, we talked about how Jesus had said, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom has come near. And Jesus, in this sermon, is going to provide some more detail about what that kingdom is like. Today's passage is split up into three parts. You can see those on your outline if you have one. We'll talk about standards of the kingdom. In verses 1 through 12. We'll talk about witnesses of the kingdom in verses 13 through 16. And then finally, living in the kingdom, verses 17 through 48. So let me read that first section for us, Matthew 5, verses 1 through 12. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. 
Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So last week we saw Jesus preach, call, and heal. And as he did that, large crowds of people began to follow him. And so Jesus, he starts to take advantage of that opportunity here. He sits down on a mountainside. And so we kind of have this peaceful, serene setting for this teaching to take place. It's kind of casual. And his disciples come to him, it says. And he begins to teach them. This teaching is for his disciples, but it's likely that the crowds would have stuck around for this and would have come to listen as well. So we have kind of a two-part audience here. The disciples, but also just the people at large. This first section of the sermon is more commonly known as the Beatitudes. You might have heard that before. The Beatitudes comes from the Latin word beati, I hope I'm saying that right, uh, which means blessed. So you can kind of see uh, that more literally, uh, the blessings from Jesus are the Beatitudes. It's a proclamation from Jesus of nine different blessings. There's a what and a why to them. There are those who are blessed the poor in spirit, those who mourn, etc. But there's also a why they are considered blessed. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They will be comforted. They will inherit the earth. You see, this teaching from Jesus is subversive, which means this goes against the established cultural ideas of what it means to be blessed. See, this is what makes the Beatitudes so striking to us, is that the groups of people that Jesus lists here are not the ones that we normally think of as blessed. Usually, when we think of those who are blessed, we we think in terms of a couple things, right? Our minds immediately, whether we know it or not, go to material blessing or wealth or physical well-being, or people's health, or really just the lack of anything that we would call a bad thing happening in their lives. But Jesus, Jesus has a different idea in mind of what it means to be blessed. Jesus' blessing, he says, goes to those who don't seem to have it all going for them. And those who don't have it all going for them will receive a blessing in the future. Right? It's they will receive. Though their situation is not the best now, there will be a time in the future where that won't be the case any longer. Jesus says the poor in spirit will be rich when they inherit the kingdom. Those who mourn will find comfort. The meek will inherit the earth. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be filled with that righteousness. 
See, this is part of what Jesus means when he says that the kingdom of heaven has come near. So that in that kingdom, things are as they should be. See, in this kingdom on earth right now, things are not as they should be. It seems like those who are well off are receiving God's blessing. But Jesus mentions that those who mourn, those who are poor in spirit, that they will be blessed. As the kingdom of heaven has come near, things will begin to become as they should be. But there will also come a time in the future when things ultimately will be made as they should be. See, the Beatitudes from Jesus are both promises to claim in the present for people who find themselves in these situations. But they're also something to hope and trust for in the future, that this blessing will come in a more final way for them. The idea of the Beatitudes is not just one of comfort to those who may be suffering, though it is that. It's more so that those who are in these situations are typically looking to move out of those situations. Right? Those who are mourning don't really want to be mourning any longer. But you see, this is where the true blessing is found. Because the only way out of these situations, really, is to trust in God. And trusting in God, that is the true blessing of the Beatitudes. So let's move on to our next section for this morning. Jesus continues and talks about witnesses of the kingdom. Let me read verses 13 through 16 for us. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand. And it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So Jesus shifts here. And he goes from talking more generally to talking more specifically to the disciples. He says that they are two things. This is a familiar passage to many of us. He says that they are salt of the earth and that they are the light of the world. It's pretty incredible that Jesus is saying these things to them already because we just saw in the last chapter Jesus has only just called them. So for this to be a reality in their lives would be astounding to them. They have only just begun to follow Jesus. How can they be the salt and the light? But now that Jesus has finished describing the standards of the kingdom, he moves to tell the disciples how they can draw attention to this kingdom, how they can share in his preaching message. Salt has two purposes, preservation and flavor. 
the disciples, were to preserve the earth. Salt was, and maybe still is in some places, I don't, it probably is, used to preserve meat. And this passage was written in a time before all of us had freezers to store our meat in. And so the way to keep meat from going bad was to cover it with salt. In a similar way, the disciples are to keep the world from going bad. They were to keep what is good in the world. The disciples were also to make the world more flavorful. Right, Salt doesn't actually provide flavor, but draws the flavor out. In a similar way, the disciples are to draw out the goodness that is already in the world. Salt of the earth preserves what is good and draws out what is good. The thing that makes salt so useful is its purity. Jesus says that if salt loses its saltiness, it is no longer useful. The way salt would lose its saltiness is if it was diluted, mixed with something else. The disciples, if they want to be salt of the earth, must remain pure. They must remain totally fixed on living in this kingdom. They must remain committed to bringing this kingdom into reality and making people aware that this kingdom is a reality. Like salt, light also has two purposes. To illuminate and to provide life. The disciples were to illuminate the world. They were to show the world as it truly is, to expose what is in the world, both good and the bad. But they were also to show the world as it could be. The disciples were also to provide life to the world, to provide a light by which things grow and flourish. Now, the thing that makes light so useful is its visibility. Jesus says that if the light is hidden, it is useless. The way light is hidden is by covering it with something else. The disciples, if they want to be the light of the world, must live visible lives so that other people can see them not because they themselves need to be seen in a prideful way, but so that God can be seen through them. Through our lives, people can see life as it should be. Through our lives, we can give life to the lives of others. If we are followers of Jesus, if we are his disciples, then we must be salt and light to the world. We must witness to this kingdom that Jesus said has come near, the kingdom that we are a part of. It's easy to lose our saltiness. It's easy to mix the the purity and the life that Jesus wants for us with the life that the world draws us into. We fail often to be distinct from the world. Do our lives look any different 
from the lives of people that don't follow Jesus? It's a very important question for us. When we fail to be distinct, we then fail to preserve what is good about the world, and the world decays. When we fail to be distinct, we fail to make the world better. It becomes bland. See, it's easy to hide our light. We become afraid that someone might come and cover our light. The only one who can cover our light is ourselves. We're afraid, often, of what people might think of us, what people might say to us or about us. But if light, as Jesus says, illuminates the good and the bad of the world, and if it gives life to the world, then why would we hide it? We must show it. See, many people in recent years have pointed to all of the wrongs that Christianity has done over the centuries. It's a very common thing to hear these days. And there are things that Christianity has done wrong. But it has also provided a lot of right for the world. The moral framework that we hold to today exists because it arose out of Christianity. The education system in our country started because of Christianity. The healthcare system, the hospitals, started because of Christianity. Because people who were following Jesus, who wanted to be salt and light, saw a need in their world and moved to help solve it. I'd love to see the same thing happen now. We're beginning to see these things decay and no longer be useful because followers of Jesus have moved out of them, have failed to be salt and light. Let's move on to our last section for this morning. Living in the kingdom. Let me read Matthew chapter 5, the rest of Matthew 5, 17 through 48 for us. This will be a long section. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will be by any means, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, Anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. Anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. 
Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last petty. You've heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery. Anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, Do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Do not swear by your hand, for you cannot even make one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. You've heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You've heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? If you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. It's a long section from Jesus. This is his sermon that we're talking about this morning. And now that Jesus has established the standards of the kingdom, what it looks like to witness to the kingdom, uh, he begins what is really the, the bulk of his teaching in this chapter. It's pretty long. His teaching on how people are to live in this kingdom that has come near. This section of Jesus' teaching is really his primary ethical teaching that we find in Scripture, perhaps some of his most important teaching in the Gospels. In this section, we see Jesus go back and forth between, you have heard that it has been said, 
But I say to you, he's shifting away from the moral rules and principles of the religious leaders of his day. And he's shifting instead towards a focus on virtues and on character. Not just murder, but the anger that lies behind the murder. Not just adultery, but the lust that lies behind the adultery. Not just divorce, but the selfish reasons for doing so. Not just keeping oaths, but not having to make oaths in the first place. Not an eye for an eye, but instead turning the other cheek. And not just loving your friends, but loving your enemies, too. This emphasis from Jesus here serves as a resource for us on how we can answer or how we can answer tough ethical questions instead of focusing on moral rules and principles we focus instead on becoming better people becoming more like Jesus the ethical focus is more on who we are rather than on what we do We think today about ethical problems because we want to know what is the right thing to do. And we come up with these ethical dilemmas and these tough questions that we want answers to. But this reduces ethics to decisions. Jesus, I think, would encourage us to focus on character. Focus on becoming the right type of person. And if we do that, we focus on following Jesus and becoming more like him we will already find ourselves making those right decisions. Jesus is likely more focused on us becoming like him rather than being focused on us just making the right decisions in our lives. Jesus cares not only about our actions, cares not only about us just doing the right things, he cares about our hearts, cares about why we do what we do. This is what Jesus means here when he says that he has come not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Jesus actually raises the bar for us here. It would be much easier for Jesus to say, well, just do the right thing. Here's the list. But Jesus doesn't say that. He raises the bar for us. He says not only do the right things, but think the right things and feel the right things in your heart. See, for Jesus, the law is still essential. Just because the kingdom has come near does not mean that we get to live however we want to live. It's actually the opposite. Because the kingdom has come near, we actually are held to a higher standard if we are living in that kingdom. But Jesus doesn't call us to keep a standard that he himself doesn't keep. When Jesus says that he has come to fulfill the law, He is referring to the fact that he will live up to the law completely. He will never break the law that God established. And as he says here, his heart behind his actions will also be perfect. Because he did that, because Jesus lived a perfect life, his death on the cross then atones for our sins. See, Jesus paid the penalty for us on the cross. He takes our place. When Jesus says to be perfect in verse 48, he might not actually mean that we can be perfect in this life. He means that we will 
be made perfect before the Father in glory because Jesus will be there with us. And it is his blood that washes us clean. It's difficult when covering this much text in a sermon like this this morning to draw out some application for our lives, right? There's lots of applications to make here. The one question I want to ask you this morning, the one question I think Jesus is asking all of us, is this. Who are you becoming? Maybe you've cleaned up the outside of your life to the point where you, you know, maybe you don't make bad decisions anymore, right? Maybe the things that uh, Jesus lists here, the outward actions, you know, you're, you're doing pretty well with those things. Maybe it's time to clean up the inside, too. Jesus is asking all of us to evaluate our hearts. These are heart struggles that we have as people. Which one is the hardest for you? Anger? Lust? The reason Jesus has drawn all of these people to himself, the reason the crowds have gathered here to listen to him preach, is because it is only in a relationship with him that these things can be addressed. It is only by looking to Jesus and his example, by listening to his his teachings, and becoming the kind of person that Jesus is, that we can find true change in our lives. We need relationships with other people, too. Relationships where we can openly confess and repent and work towards becoming better in these areas in our lives. As you spend more time with Jesus, you will find yourself becoming more like him. That is where the true blessing is found in his presence. Let me pray for us this morning. Father, it's a high calling that you've placed on our lives. And we fall short because we're people and we're sinners and we're human. But God, we thank you. We thank you that Jesus has come to fulfill the law. We thank you that he took our place on the cross. Father, we thank you that in him we can be made clean. May that fact draw us closer to him, closer into relationship with him. May we let Jesus enter into those areas of our lives, those heart struggles that we deal with. May we let him into those areas. May we truly open up seek after him. And as we live in a relationship with him, may we become more like him so that we can be salt and light to the world. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.